everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, treatment of those things, and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss. I'm a licensed clinician uh, out here in California, and uh, I specialize in the treatment of those uh, aforementioned things. And uh, this is a question and answer based podcast for you, the listener, to send me the host therapist, um, questions about OCD, how it works, what it's about, how to work with it, how to, how to overcome it, and I will answer your questions. Ah, so today is not going to be a typical uh, podcast where I, I answer a question from a listener um, or from several listeners, as, uh, as it sometimes is. So today's episode is going to be a continuation of the Faith and Doubt series focusing on religious scrupulosity. In my past episodes related to faith and doubt, I've focused a lot on uh, just a general overall description of uh, of religious scrupulosity, and then a number of interviews really focusing on uh, uh, scrupulosity from a Christian perspective. Um, however, scrupulosity doesn't just affect Christians, it can, or Christians, or Catholics, or anybody you know on that spectrum. It can affect anyone within any religion because. It's not a problem with the religion. It's an OCD issue that grabs onto something of greatest value to the individual. And for a person of tremendous faith, it is very likely to grab onto their faith. So my original intention in putting together the Faith and Doubt series would be to talk with people of, of, of all faith backgrounds and trying to have people who, who really specialize in those particular religions, either, uh, either clergy members from those uh, uh, religious traditions. Um, and today, I was lucky enough to have Dr. Jedediah Sieve join us today. So a little about Dr. Sieve. Dr. Sieve is an, an assistant professor of psychology at Swarthmore College and is a licensed clinical psychologist in Pennsylvania and Florida. He is a graduate of Yale University and the University of Pennsylvania has published numerous articles on the subjects pertaining to CBT, OCD, and religion, especially as it pertains to Orthodox Jews. Today, he joined me to continue on with the Faith and Doubt series by talking about his expertise with treating religious scrupulosity among the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jewish population. So without further ado, here was my interview with Dr. Jedediah Sieve. All right, well, Dr. Sieve, thank you so much for joining us uh, here on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking your time uh, to chat with us about your expertise as it comes to uh, religious scrupulosity. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. Yeah. So, um, in this uh, in this conversation, you have you have a particular expertise in working with religious scrupulosity, and also you've done a lot of writing when it comes to the treatment of religious scrupulosity for ultra orthodox communities, which is a, a, a topic that I haven't covered on this uh, on this podcast, but I think fits neatly into the. Uh, I, I faith and doubt uh, uh, series that uh, that we've been doing here. So, um, so as as you and I talked about, uh, I, I am greatly appreciative that you are here on the podcast to educate both me and other listeners because. Uh, I, I've realized that I don't know very much about about this topic, and it's something that, uh, you know, it's I, I'm I'm happy to be wrong. I'm happy to not know things because ultimately that just means that I can I can learn a little bit more. But you punctuate in your articles that uh, knowing something and being uh, sensitive and knowledgeable about a population before you're working with them and as you're working with them really helps uh, uh, the treatment in general. Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, we can't all be part of every community. And it doesn't mean that we can only work successfully with folks in the communities that we already know real well. So um, 
you know, it's helpful to have background knowledge and, and certainly uh, more important that you're open to being educated about uh, really by the person you're working with or the people you work with about what's important and how those things relate to, say, OCD. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I have a number of questions here, and we'll just kind of bounce back and forth between uh, between them. But um, love it if you if you could just kind of go over uh, or give us an overview of of what religious scrupulosity is from your perspective, how you treat it, and uh, and well, why don't we start there? What is religious scrupulosity, and and ultimately overall, how is it treated? Yeah. So I think of scrupulosity as uh, you know, it's certainly a manifestation of OCD, um, where the the core fears are uh, religious. If we're talking about a religious version, um, or or moral, maybe could be secular moral. Um, and uh, I don't really like to describe it using the word subtype, uh, not to be too nitpicky, because um, it can be manifest really in any other subtype of OCD. And so, in other words, we often think about. Um, scrupulosity as being part of the unacceptable thought symptom dimension. And, and there are some reasons for that that make sense. But the truth is that you can have scrupulosity with symptoms that are very much like contamination symptoms. Uh, but the, the core fear is not maybe about being sick or spreading illness or something like that, but rather about something related to ritual contamination. Uh, so, uh, you know, have you cleaned properly after using the bathroom before praying? Um, um, menstrual uh, purity laws in some religions um, and, and those sorts of things, cross-contaminating uh, traces of dairy and meat if you keep kosher and you're not allowed to, to mix those. And those would really look, I don't know, like topographically, basically, like any other sort of contamination fear, but the core fear uh, that's driving it is a religious one, or it could be about checking you, checking mm -hmm. if you have articulated your prayers uh, properly, uh, uh, really any other sort of checking where the harm that you're afraid of or the core fear again has something to do with a religious uh, theme. And certainly it could be, you know, sexual symptoms. You, every time you, you go to, uh, to pray, you get intrusive thoughts of uh, something with blasphemy uh, or, or something sexual or whatever. And again, the fear isn't I'm a pedophile. That would just be sexual OCD. But maybe the fear has something to do with morality and sin related to it. And then all of a sudden we're talking about scrupulosity. So I think of scrupulosity as a type of core fear that can be manifest really in any symptom dimension or across lots of symptom dimensions. And some of that will then differ on average with lots of individual differences, but on average um, uh, by religious group. So you mentioned about, you know, ultra-Orthodox Jews, for example. And in Judaism, there are a ton of very, very specific and very detailed requirements and prohibitions that are behavioral. I uh, gave you, uh, you know, uh, or, or at least alluded to a few of them just now, you know, with, with laws of keeping kosher. And, and really throughout the day, there are tons of different things that either one is expected or required to do or one is not allowed to do. And so um, it can latch onto all of those in all those different forms. Um, and there are other religions where there's a lot less of that. For example, I think most Protestant Christians with scrupulosity don't have as many rituals and, and, and specific behavioral proscriptions to worry about. And so, you know, again, speaking on average and generalities, painting with, you know, broad strokes, as they say, mm -hmm. uh, lots of Protestants with scrupulosity are worrying about things like devil worship and blasphemy and, and their relationship with God, offending God, heaven, hell, those sorts of things. 
Um, and, you know, Catholics, again, on average, maybe somewhere in between. There's a lot of the similar stuff, obviously, you know, Christianity, it's, it's going to be similar. Uh, but then there's also more ritual, religious ritual related kinds of concerns like, uh, you know, if I take communion, am I going to drop the host? Or uh, did I articulate well enough to the priest during confession what I've done? Did he understand it right? Did I understand him right? Uh, and so uh, it's somewhere in between those two. Mm-hmm. Right. I think you also asked about treating it, uh, how, generally how one would go about treating it. Was that, was that the second part of the question that I forgot to answer? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I have, I, have a, I have a whole section here that we can talk about just how, how uh, religious scrupulosity is treated uh, for specific for Jewish populations. Um, and also we can broaden out uh, to, to other kind of religious subtypes as, as well. Um, but I'm, I'm, I mean, we can certainly jump into that now, might as well. Okay. All right. I mean, there are lots of little modifications that I think are helpful. And, and you know, I've written about some of those, mm-hmm. um, yeah, both, you know, when you're working with ultra-Orthodox Jews, but in principle, the same sorts of ideas, I think, would extend to other forms of scroop. I would say that, you know, maybe the two biggest components, although, you know, we can get into a more fine-grained analysis after, if you'd like, are, first of all, you have to be able to distinguish and disentangle the religion from the OCD. It's mm-hmm. real hard to tell. Mm-hmm. So, for example... Um, if I told you that, that, that somebody comes into your office and they're struggling with some of this and, and they say to you, well, I, I have this routine in the morning where um, when I wake up, I worry that my hands are contaminated. And uh, before I'm willing to touch my eyes, nose, mouth, ears, any sort of opening in the body, mm-hmm. um, I need to wash my hands and I have to do it in a very specific way. So I have to fill a cup with water and I have to uh, uh, transfer the cup from my right hand to my left hand and pour water over my right hand and then alternate switching the cup to the right hand over the left hand and do that on each hand alternatingly three times right left right left right left and then i'm okay my hands uh, are clean and now i can touch my eyes and and other sorts of things um is that a religious ritual or is that a compulsive ritual and and i think probably the answer is how on earth would you know um, it sounds like it certainly could be an OCD ritual, um, but maybe if, not. If if someone at all, <clears throat> so if someone had come into my office and told me that, or someone on the street had had stopped me, having not known, uh, I, I would have said, "Yeah, that's not the way anybody washes their hands. Why would you wash your hands that way?" However, um, ha- having having now read some of your writings, uh, that's a that's a a prescribed and typical morning routine for someone in this community. Which I should also mention. Thank you for sending me those articles, and I'll say this to listeners: if you would like to read more about um, uh, about religious scrupulosity from Doctor Sieve, uh, he's been so kind enough to uh, send a couple articles and let me publish them or, or or post them on the episode page. So if you would like to read a little bit more, there'll be some articles there. But I, I, I so rudely cut you off. Go go ahead. No, no, that's great. Thanks. <laughs> um, and so so you know. How would you know? You wouldn't know, probably, unless you happen to know. Right. And, and Or you'd need to ask the person what motivates the behavior and, and learn more about it. Right. And so my point really with just saying that is that is that the behavior itself is not inherently uh, OCD versus versus uh, um, a religious ritual just because of the behavior. Just the same way hand washing is not definitely a ritual. I mean, you want your surgeon scrubbing up before surgery, don't you? So that's the behavior itself is not inherently anything. It's it's how it's used, and so you really need to uh, work to 
disentangle the OCD from their religion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I've actually been corresponding the past day or two with somebody who reached out to me looking for, for a group treatment and had the unfortunate experience that I think is not uncommon of having worked with an OCD expert in the past who was really not interested in the religion. It was just sort of like, these are stupid ideas and let's just break them. It's superstitious and, mm-hmm. and not really respecting the patient's values at all. Right. And I, I think, you know, the opposite is what's most important. Learn to disentangle uh, the OCD part from the religious part so that you're able to live a life, first of all, that you value, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, so it's not, it's a life that's not in service of OCD. Uh, it actually turns out, we used to say this and then finally collected data that actually showed that we were right, um, that most people with scrupulosity experience their symptoms as interfering with their relationship with God or their religious practice, not as helping it. I mean, ostensibly, you'd think that you're doing those things to try to be better at religion in some way or avoid sin or whatever, but it's, it, it doesn't. It interferes with it. And so, we're trying to cut out the part that is pathological, which is the OCD part, which has latched on to what's important to you, just like OCD always does, because OCD is opportunistic. Mm-hmm. And we're going to try to recognize which parts of this are OCD, which parts are religion, so we can cut out and violate the OCD parts and you can be left with what matters to you unadulterated by OCD and you can be doing, uh, you know, worship or whatever you would call it, uh, uh, not of the OCD and not in service of anxiety reduction, but in a way that's meaningful to you religiously. So that's, that's a huge theme. And then there's a second part. Uh, um, feel free to jump on in if, I, if I'm rambling a little too long about this, but this is great. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the second, you know, broad theme is really about then once it's disentangled, it's, it's really the part where you're working to violate the OCD without violating the religion. And so, if the person is really not being excessive in, or, or, or dysfunctional in any way from a religious standpoint, they just find the religion oppressive, that can be a thing. There are people who struggle religiously, just like there are really people who struggle to understand their sexuality. But that's not how we would describe somebody with sexual orientation related OCD. That's Mm -hmm. not the same issue. So, you know, there can be religious struggle. There can be religious conflict. There's a whole literature on the psychology of religion and and uh, uh, and and ambivalence, mixed experiences vis-a-vis God and that sort of thing, having nothing to do with OCD. Um, and, and, but, and, and doubt and sh- and struggling with one's religion is actually a a very common experience for for someone going through religion. It would be it. I I would argue it'd be atypical to go through a religious experience or to be a religious person and to not have questions and not have a, have that ambivalence about some things. Some things are hard to hard to hard to get behind sometimes. Yeah, very fair. Definitely very fair. Uh, it's it's not even uh, uncommon. Um, and and even if it's excessive, and even if it is more than what most people experience in terms of the distress, that per se is not enough to know it's not just, you know, like it's uh, some people uh, struggle with their relationships with other people. Some people struggle with their relationship with God, and that's not automatically OCD. But, but it, if it's OCD... Mm-hmm which is sort of the premise of our conversation here, mm-hmm. um, then we need to violate OCD without violating the religious rules. Mm-hmm. And so I, I actually think that point is really important for clinicians. And this is where some clinicians who are really otherwise very talented with OCD get it wrong. And so let me, let me just illustrate, if you don't mind. Um, if, if, you had, if you were working with somebody who had OCD, and, um, you know, I'm, I, I approach things in general, uh, my 
I, sort of my default when I work with OCD is, is pretty straightforward exposure and response prevention. You know, depending on uh, the person, the situation, we might draw on uh, some, some, some uh, skills or techniques from cognitive therapy, from ACT, mindfulness, right? We're going we're gonna to pull in what we need to uh, pull in, mm -hmm. but I'm defaulting to an ERP sort of way of, of uh, framing the, the purpose. Mm -hmm. And so let's say somebody came to you uh, with OCD and uh, they're concerned about the possibility of accidentally stepping on, let's say, uh, a contaminated or dirty needle in the street. Mm -hmm. And so one of their avoidance ritual kind of things is that they won't wear sandals or go barefoot. They're always wearing closed-toed shoes, maybe even always wearing steel-toed boots, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're thinking, look, obviously that's excessive. That's not what most people do. It is theoretically possible that one could step on a dirty needle by accident if you're wearing sandals, but that's a, a risk that most people deem reasonable to take and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So now you want to do exposures for that. So would you say, look, you know, we have to learn to tolerate uncertainty and risk. So let's go find needles in the street and stick ourselves with them. Because after all, you can't be sure of safety ever. It seems unreasonable. That's, that's insane. Right. That's a, who would do that? Right. that? That would be unethical. Uh -huh. And it's not a reasonable risk. That's just doing something that is incredibly dangerous or yeah. reckless. Or yeah. it gets pretty close to just enacting the actual fear consequence rather than taking appropriate normal risk and tolerating the uncertainty, right. which is what we would normally. So what would, what would I do with such a person? I mean, I guess I don't know the full picture in my own example, but, but I can imagine, you know, we'd walk around wearing sandals. Maybe we'd go further. Maybe we'd walk around the street barefoot. Yes. Um, and, and those sorts of things, but we're not going to actually seek out potentially dirty needles and stick ourselves with them. We might, as we walk around with sandals or, or barefoot outside, we might, talk about how, you know, we're doing this, despite the fact that there's some risk that we could step on one, right? That would be the, the right way to do an exposure of that sort. And I think that the parallel, you know, if somebody, let's say, has to go to or Orthodox Jews, let's say, who's yeah. somebody who keeps kosher and can't eat a combination of dairy and meat. So some therapists, good therapists have, have sort of, uh, uh, argued with me that like, like, dude, just, just go eat a cheeseburger. Like just have the patient go eat a cheeseburger and they'll realize it's fine. They're not going to get struck down by lightning or anything like that. Right. And, uh, and you say, well, you know, but you're not actually not allowed to, that's not keeping kosher. Yeah. It's all right. Fine. Well, but can you get a special dispensation in Judaism, especially maybe more than some other religions, you get a lot of leniencies, uh, when somebody is sick, uh, for various kinds of reasons and, and that sort of thing. I think that misses the point for a few really important reasons. The first one is that to whatever extent you get a special dispensation, that sounds like reassurance to me. So it almost turns it into, what, what do you gain from it if, if you get permission and that it's allowed? So it, it limits what you gain from it. Second have, of all... Because you, you, you have the promise of safety in that. It, it pro yeah, quote, exactly. Promise of safety in that. Exactly. And you know, some people might not accept that fully and still might be worried, but sure. still, why? Um, it, it's, it's, it's almost like built-in reassurance. And uh, it's also the case mm -hmm. um, that they uh, they don't learn how to distinguish the OCD parts from the religious parts because it's all being lumped together. And they don't get to feel like they're living consistently with their values and like they're somehow specially broken compared to their you know, friends in their community because they can't keep basic laws because they're so broken from their OCD. Why would that be a good message? Right. And so there's no reason to, it, it'll be unhelpful for lots of reasons and it actually is just a violation of the religious rule, which is not the problem. It's the 
OCD rules that are. Right. So you have to think, you know, sort of, sort of conceptually, you're coming up with something that would be analogous to wearing those uh, sandals or walking around barefoot. Mm -hmm. we, yes, we're taking the risk that there might be something sinful or wrong, whatever the person's core fear is. Mm -hmm. But we're taking that risk in a way that either other people do do or at least that other people would do if there were a good reason to. Yeah, and I, I, I like the, the verbiage in your writing the, the, was, uh, we, this person needs to be open to the risk of sin. We don't need to be blatantly in violation of sin, but we need to be open to the risk as everybody is, everybody implicitly is in, in the course of, of living their day. Um, I, I've talked to uh, uh, Ted Witzik, who's another screw person. Uh, he, he talks about the 85% rule, and I don't know if that's, his or or someone else's, but I, I it basically goes. I'm sure you're familiar with this. It's that uh, we're we're trying to help someone act as if act in line with 85 percent of their congregation or 85 percent of their religious community, because there are going to be people on the tails who are going to do, who are just naturally going to do way too much or way too little as somebody. But we're just trying to be the the average person, and the average person probably, in, especially in an orthodox community, wouldn't go and eat a cheeseburger. That might be more, you know, in line with a, a a reformed or more liberal community, but for the orthodox community, that's just not something they're going to get on board with. Yeah, so th so that that sort of approach does make sense to me in a lot of ways, and certainly with with uh, the folks Ted works with the most, it sounds like that's a good way to do it. With 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 ultra orthodox Jews. Um, there, there are some things about how the religion works, actually, that I think will make that framing of it a little less compelling to a lot of the patients. And, and it's, it's both because um, of it's because of some things about Judaism that are that are both that both make all of this more complicated, but also easier. So, for example, I was mentioning before how much Judaism and especially, you know, somebody who's Orthodox or ultra Orthodox, uh, which for our purposes means they're they're really uh, uh, adhering behaviorally or at least trying to. To adhere behaviorally to all of the rules and restrictions, mm -hmm. uh, whether they like them or not, that sort of thing. Um, and and there's so many of them, and and they happen throughout the day, every single day. And so it's very very fertile ground for OCD to latch onto all of these things, right? There's it gets as as detailed. Now this isn't like you know sinful if you don't do it, but there's either even. Uh, suggestions, I guess you might say, about how to tie your shoes in the rabbinic literature. Mm. You're supposed to actually, leaving aside the why part, but just to show you like how detailed and how throughout the day this is, yeah. you're supposed to put on your right shoe, then your left shoe, then tie your left shoe, and then tie your left your right shoe. Why? Okay, leaving aside the why. And and usually this is framed in the rabbinic literature, this sort of thing, as as uh, as something that gives you a lot of fulfillment, as is great. There's a there's a there's a passage, a Talmudic passage that says that God wanted to uh, uh, to basically bestow merit upon the Jewish people. And so he gave them so many requirements and so many rules so they'd ha have the opportunity to fulfill his will so much, basically. Mm. So in other words, it's thought of as like, this is a way that I can, I can uh, infuse my secular mundane day with things that connect me to to God or to my values, bigger picture things. Of course, for somebody with OCD, though, it can latch on to all these things, and there's just almost constant opportunity to potentially do something wrong or not do something that you're supposed to. However, the advantage mm -hmm. is that the the the, the Jewish legal system 
is is very much like other legal systems in the sense that there are there's legislation there's case law mm-hmm. if you study the Talmud you know you might feel like you're in law school where you're you're literally going through case law and then whole big debates uh, uh, about you know which aspect of that let's say case in the case law is the one that w- was the reason for the following judgment. It's it sort of, it, it might read and in some ways it's just like a Supreme court of the United States sort mm-hmm. of decision about a really complicated issue where they're trying to understand and distill what the core mechanisms or the core features or whatever it is in the law. Like what was the law saying? What was it referring to? What counts when you say yeah. uh, intentionally, but what makes something intentional, like those sorts of operationalisms, and so there are much more clear guidelines. Now, not all rabbis agree mm-hmm. on them, but it's not so much usually for people in that community that I'm trying to mostly get stuff right or mostly do it like other people. There are usually actually legalistic answers to what you can and can't do, even if there are some lots of disagreements about exactly the boundary. But you could go ask your rabbi, for example, mm-hmm. Um you could go ask your rabbi what the actual requirement is, what would be crossing the line, what would be okay, even if most people don't do it. So in terms of that 85% rule, we often in treatment with this population are doing things that are not common for other people to do, but are not prohibited either. They don't actually violate the rule, even though who would actually do it. So one example that comes to mind is I don't think it's typical in a kosher kitchen Uh for somebody to make you know, chicken soup on one burner on the stove while they're making mac and cheese on the burner next to it on the stove. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's not prohibited. And so, yeah, you don't see that a lot. And people might not do that. I don't know, like whatever, just sort of generally like, why wow, it's going to mix. Why are you going to do it? Mm-hmm. But if, if there were a reason to do it in treatment, if you ask the rabbi, like the, it doesn't violate anything though. Yeah. So, so because there are these actual uh, uh, more clearly operationalized limits and and op, and and efforts to quantify exactly what counts as doing the thing you you're either not allowed to do or fulfilling the thing you're supposed to do um it, it becomes a little bit less important just to judge or to try to say we're trying to be like other people generally for most of my mm-hmm. ultra orthodox patients it becomes much more um what violates the rule and what doesn't and if it doesn't violate the rule but you're still really uncomfortable that's probably actually a good sign that it's obsessional discomfort mm-hmm. or obsessional related discomfort. And we're going to do it on purpose then because it actually doesn't violate a rule that has boundaries to it. That's a really interesting way to, it's, it's there, there's just so much more of that that just doesn't, uh, my, my head doesn't, has trouble wrapping its head around or itself around because this is not a community I typically work with. Um, yeah. It's a, I guess to that to that point, and you kind of touched on this, but I'd love for you to go into more detail. But what are some what are some of the unique challenges you you see within the Orthodox community that you don't see in other other religious groups or even other 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 Jewish groups or other you know less Orthodox groups? Well, you know, uh, most of the things I just said can mm-hmm. potentially, at least for any given person, uh, you know, have like. Uh, the other side of the coin sort of challenge associated with it. I mean, for example, the Mm -hmm. fact that it is uh, that there are often well-articulated boundaries that can work in your favor, but it also uh, is less flexible in other ways. So, you know, those can be helpful when you now know what the boundary of what you can do is 
and therefore you can choose to do it even if the patient's uncomfortable with it. Right, that's where it's helpful, mm-hmm. but it also means that conversations like when I hear at, at IOCDF, a lot of times people um, f- coming from from different places are talking about scrupulosity and you know, you know, are, are, what does God really expect of you? And 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 you know, do you really think that God is so unforgiving? And uh, uh, isn't it insulting? to God in some ways to act as though if you did this one minor thing that, that God would be so upset and but like mm-hmm. that kind of, that kind of conversation doesn't really help most of my patients in this community yeah. because it's, it's, it's almost, it's weird to say out loud. And, and I, I think it's going to sound stranger than it really is, but yeah. I don't know how to say it in a more nuanced way. Their actual day-to-day practice is often disconnected in some ways from questions of like, my relationship with God or, or my theology uh, or theological assumptions about, about God. It's not, it's not as much of a feeling. It's not as much, it's not that that doesn't, it's not there. It's, you could point me to rabbinic passages that do talk about relationship with God and that sort of thing. Sure. I'm just talking about in the moment, in the day to day, when the person is stressed out, whether they have OCD and that's why they're stressed out, or if it's really just a religious issue, if they're stressed out about something about keeping kosher and, oh my gosh, did I do this wrong? And what do I do in this case? And they're not experiencing it in the moment, even if in theory it is as being relevant to punishment, as being relevant to hell, as being relevant to God. Mm-hmm. And, it, and sometimes the rabbinic literature actually tries to correct for that and say, you know, like you need to be connected to God actually. And there've been you know, rabbinic leaders over the centuries who've tried to sort of call people out and say like, when you're doing this stuff, like it, it's you, 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 eyes on the prize. But, but in the moment for most of us, whether we have OCD or not, that's not how we're thinking as we're doing requirements or avoiding prescriptions. And so that's true also um, in terms of what's driving the fears. Sometimes my patients are worried about God, uh, my, my Orthodox Jewish patients. Yeah. And sometimes it's, 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 they're worried about the violation of the behavior. And so focused on that, it's, it almost doesn't sound religious, even though it's fundamentally religious. It, it almost sounds like, a, and I think this is the trap that I fell into as well in my in my initial questions to you, and using the word like faith and belief and things like that a lot. That's, I mean, to say it bluntly, that's that that's more that's more Christian Catholic talk than than a more uh, Orthodox Jewish community talk. Um, but I also, I, in just in the way you describe that, I could see, or I'm, I'm certainly hearing a, a tension in in the the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, as you said. Some rabbis will argue that you know getting getting too involved with this misses the point. That all this stuff is to try to help you to connect with God, remind you of God's presence, have you think about God on a day to day basis. But then there is also you previously mentioned that you know the, the the larger literature about you know kind of feeling like law school where there is an accepted discussion and argument and debate of trying to get to all the fine details of what is the right way to do this. There, I, I, I hear that tension there. Yeah, that's right. It's there. It's there in the religion. It's there in the day to day. And it's really, you know, you. It, I think that tension is is more broadly, at least in part, about questions of of forming habits and doing regular behaviors and 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 the pros and the cons of that. And so, for example, you know, just thinking about 
trying to be mindful, working on mindfulness in general, it's the same sort of issue. You know, in some ways, if you have a routine, rituals in general, I don't mean just in the OCD sense, ritual, routine, practice, habit, those are helpful, right? You can, you can again, infuse your life with things that, that matter to you. You can develop defaults and habits you can change your 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 taste you can work on your character uh, by doing that sort of thing you sort of chip away at it mm-hmm. uh, there's a there's a famous rule by one of the um medieval jewish philosophers and legal authorities where he says you know it's if you're going to get i mean paraphrasing obviously if you were to give a thousand dollars in charity you do better actually to give a dollar each to 100 people than a hundred dollars to one person because the regularly giving it is going to impact you and your character more forgetting about even what it's helping the other person. Now you've done a hundred acts of charity. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, that's certainly at least a way to see it. But of course the, the, the trade-off is that anything you do all the time becomes rote and it just becomes an annoying thing. And sometimes you don't necessarily want to do it. And when you do it, you're not being mindful of it. I mean, how many everyday things do we do uh, uh, without, without, thinking really a lot about why we're doing it or what's important about it to us, even though there might be connections to our values and to our goals like that. Prayer is a really good example because Mm -hmm. in Judaism, again, prayer, like all these other things, there are rules about it Mm -hmm. and you have to say certain prayers and you have to say them a certain way. And it's not, so there's no, again, for my, my patients in this community are not interested in conversation about, doesn't God know what's in your heart? I mean, right. Yeah. But God also knows what I'm thinking and God still required me to say certain prayers. Right. So he could have read my mind too, without me having to say them, but I'm still supposed to say them because I'm still supposed to articulate them at at a certain volume and I'm still there. And you know, I'm supposed to do it a certain number of times a day and all those kinds of things. And now, of course, if you say the same prayer three times a day, every day of your life, the challenge shifts to become actually paying attention to it instead of muttering words that you've known by heart for decades right right so that's that same sort of tension in my mind between being connected to like the values that are driving it and the real meaning and the fact that you're really actually praying to god right um while uh, uh, while doing it all the time in a certain sort of way and 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 uh, and i think that's exactly what happens for folks not just in this community but anybody who who does that sort of thing regular practice that relates to their values but it's done the same way all the time right so uh, that's an that's a fantastic example of you know if if this if this action or behavior is prescribed it's a require it's a required step over time as you said anything that we do over and over and over again it's going to lose its emotional value it's going to lose its 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 it's going to lose its spark let's just say that how how does that? I guess how, that that kind of gets then into this element of, of uncertainty and doubt as you're as as it just becomes this thing that you do, and if you're doing it to try to connect, or if you're doing it just because it's it's prescribed. I guess how do, how would you work with a, someone with this in a situation like that? So that the situation per se, I don't even think is is uh, the problem. Um, it's it's just a description of human experience. Uh-huh. When people like, uh, in other words, outside of the OCD world altogether in just, you know, yeshivas where people are studying, you know, Jewish text and engaged with this sort of sort of like seminaries mm-hmm. uh, um, all the time, this sort of thing is talked about, right? Like, mm-hmm. like uh, um, uh, actually, you know, uh, taking time to think about 
what you're about to do before you do it. You know, mm-hmm. it's not described necessarily as mindfulness, but but approaching prayer. There are different strategies over over the centuries that people have come up with. So there are there are groups of Orthodox Jews uh, who who have the custom to put on special clothes mm-hmm. for prayer three times a day, and sometimes that just means you know wearing a sports coat. Or jacket, or, or 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 a jacket and a fedora. Of course, you know, for for years, even in America, everybody went outside. They put on a hat, right? And 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 you know, there are different reasons that people uh, sort of cite for some of those practices. But at least one of them is to prepare yourself. Uh, there's a custom to go wash your hands before prayer, whether or not your hands are dirty. Again, to prepare yourself, and 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 certainly that's a strategy that, at one level at least, has to do with orienting yourself to what you're doing and making it not you know breaking the habit. But of course, if you have a habit of orienting yourself a certain way, then that it's you know layers on itself a little bit. Right. Uh, so I don't see that as as necessarily a problem. What it ends up meaning though is that. The patients usually, again, I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes. That's there are totally obviously funny. exceptions. Yeah, but but the patients who are struggling with these ways are usually not stuck on the part about God or on the part about the big picture because they're losing the forest and the trees, and 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 they're you know there's a, a rule about what to do here, and they're the the focus is on doing it wrong or not doing it right. Now, if you ask enough, like, yeah, right, and, and then I won't have fulfilled God's will in some sort of way, and, and it can connect back to that. But the actual anxiety is, did I actually articulate this word right? Mm-hmm. Or the anxiety is, did I inadvertently mix dairy into that meat, whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, I know that's not even a direct, really, answer to your question uh, about how I'd handle it. It's, it's more that that's not, that's not the way that in the moment, I think most folks in that community who are stuck on with Scroop, that, that's not the part of it that's, that's usually their focus. It might be for some. It, it, so if I'm if I'm to understand it correctly, then and and again I'm I'm kind of using this if I'm if I'm bumbling through this, it's because I'm bumbling through this as well. Not um, at all. And learning something new. Um, so it's more stuck on the the just the, the procedures, the steps. Yeah, I think that, that that's in my experience that's been more common. Yes. Okay. Again, painting with broad strokes, but yes. Yeah, and and that's and that's totally fine. I mean, we're we're in this in this podcast. You and I are not going to hit every single caveat of every single client that could ever be out there. It's more of just uh, hit, hitting the high points. So how how is as as OCD is generally treated with uh, accepting uncertainty? What does accepting uncertainty look like for Jewish populations? That is, that's a good question. I think that often it means something that's actually pretty similar to what we mean when we're treating non-scrupulous OCD mm-hmm. for other folks. So what does uncertainty mean when it's somebody who's worried about contamination related to, you know, sickness in, in some way? Um, you know, and, 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 you know, there's a motivational piece of that. Like, why would you take this risk and what's worth it about taking this risk, that kind of thing. And there's maybe a judgment component, like, how, to what extent is are you sort of ethically or morally responsible or required, or there's an imperative that you try to avoid any possible risk? I mean, like I go drive. Nobody's accused me of of of, of being a bad person for driving just because there's some ch- chance that I could end up hurting somebody by getting into an accident some way. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not like that's it's it's okay though, but it's it's you're allowed to 
to have some amount of uncertainty and, and, and risk. But there are ways in which um, I think like even Jewish literature, rabbinic literature, for example, addresses certain kinds of uncertainty. And uh, if you do have the familiarity with, with those and you're working with somebody, as would be the case with somebody who's from a different religion, you know, it's sometimes good to draw on those as almost proof of concept. And so what I mean by that is, is there's, uh, for example, a, a principle that's applied very in, in very straightforward legal con uh, um, contexts. There's a, a principle that the Torah, the Bible, was not handed from God to heavenly angels. It was given to people. So mm -hmm. there's a, a statement in Lo Nitna Lo Malachi Asharis. It's the Torah was not given to the heavenly angels. What's legalistic about that? It's obviously just a true observation and maybe makes you feel good. And but but the context where that's applied is when the rabbis are trying to operationalize a requirement. And uh, there's a principle that it can't be unrealistic that people could successfully adhere to this law. Because God could have given, you know, God could have given the Torah to the angels and they would have been perfect in carrying out the requirements of it. But he gave it to people and people are flawed. Right. And people can't be perfect. Mm -hmm. And so any standard that would not be a standard that a typical person could be expected to adhere to can't be the standard the law requires. It can't be what God requires because he gave it to people. Um. There are, even in, in creating law, there, there are uh, passages where the rabbis, um, you know, you could look at this, if, you, if, you, if, we're, if this were a religious studies class, there are a lot of interesting things about this, but there's a, 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 a famous debate in, in, the, in, the, in the Talmud, and the, the legend goes that, you know, you know, one person was saying, here's the rule, the other person was saying, no, you got it wrong, this is the rule, and, and that a voice came from heaven. Oh. And the voice said, so-and-so is correct and picked a side. Okay. And everybody responded to that and said, the Torah is down on earth. It's not in heavens anymore. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> in other words, the, so, which again, that, that gives uh, in some ways, I guess, responsibility to, but that means that the standard is not some sort of one truth, perfect in a certain way. There's a legal process and the process is what matters. Um, and, but of course you're always balancing, I think, Maybe this is just because I was, you know, schooled in, in Orthodox Jewish schools or something. Yeah. But I think to some extent, anybody who believes in, in God or religion has to struggle with balancing sort of trust in God on the one hand, mm -hmm. you know, faith, belief, trust, and personal effort. Mm. So if I really trust in God and believe that everything comes from God, does that mean I don't have to go to work and I could just stay in bed all day? Because if God wants me to be able to feed my family, then, make then the food will arrive or the money will come into my bank account. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody says that it would be really problematic. Right. And uh -huh. so does that mean we look at somebody, you, what you don't really believe it comes from God because you put in the effort. There's a balance between you need to take, you need to put in a certain amount of effort. At some point you say, if you're religious, yeah. you say, I, you know, it's on, I trust in God or, you know, ultimately it's up to God or ultimately like that sort of thing. That doesn't absolve you from your effort, mm -hmm. nor does your effort mean that ultimately you get God isn't, you part of this right so i think that in that sense like there's a balance that's related to that uh, also about uncertainty doubt like how that fits in there, at some point there is uncertainty always yeah. there always will be at some point it is out of your hands but that also doesn't mean that everything is haphazard and or that having any uncertainty undermines the part that isn't uncertain mm-hmm
That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It it almost sounds like the 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 acceptance or the either the the, the acceptance or at the very least acknowledgement of imperfection is just built into the system. That there are so many things to do that, as you said, it's it's almost unrealistic to expect that anybody can nail all, all of them at all times perfectly. Yeah. And, and the standard for any one of them sometimes incorporates that. So speaking of cross-contaminating dairy and meat, there are, again, legalistic principles about what to do about potential trace um, uh, contamination. So there are rules. These rules get very complicated. So I'm, I, I'm not going to going to try to lay out all the details of them. But for example, mm-hmm. if if you have some sort of like ad mixture where you had, you know, a, a, a stew or a chicken soup or something and, and a, a drop of milk fell into it, yeah. it's considered nullified as long as it depends on a lot of things. But as long as there's a certain ratio, as long as it's mixed in a way that's not recognizable, whatever, whatever the specifics are, mm-hmm. but it's considered the, the, the trace amount is considered nullified to the, to the whole. Um, you know, so nobody has to be taking out microscopes to try to see whether or not there's actually it, it, a, there's a you know a physical trace uh, of something because that's not how the law is structured that's not what defines you know a little bit that or transmission or mixture or contamination there are rules about doubts sometimes if if you i mean i mean doubts about reality if you can't if you don't know whether something is x or y mm-hmm. and and uh uh and a Jewish law depends on that. There are rules about how one has to act. Can you be lenient? Do you have to be more strict? What if there's a double doubt? Uh, there's l- literally passages about this in rabbinic literature. What if there's a double doubt where you don't know if it's X or Y, but even if it's Y, which is the problematic version, you don't know if it's A or B. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there are rules about you don't have to worry about certain cases like that. And, and so some of the law has principles built in that really clearly actually demonstrate um, that physical reality is not what affects the requirement so to speak effects with an E it doesn't like that doesn't create the requirement it's and so uh, the system has built-in ideas that really go against some of the perfectionism is, and is, some of the, those fears that people have yeah is that that um, I'm gonna I'm gonna disastrously mispronounce these I'm, I'm sure but is it uh, Bitul and Rove Rove yeah Bitul is the nullification one Rove is a is a, a different version where it has to do with majority and there there are certain complex circumstances where you can assume if you have one object and you aren't sure like if you have one piece of meat and 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 it could be kosher or not kosher and it came from a set of stores let's say mm-hmm. you know nine of which are kosher and what is it? like there are rules about uh, uh, based on majority what you uh, assume to be sort of the status quo. So without it's right, exactly, John Grayson talks about Bittel and Rove. I think that's that's uh, um, as as examples of that. But the point is really a more. It's more. What are the implications of that? The implications are you, you can't be perfect. You're not an angel. That's not the expectation. You will mess up, but also you don't have to figure out every possible trace contamination sort of thing. And so then when when what does that end up meaning for patients? Well, the patients are still getting stuck because they have OCD the same way that you'd expect. Um, but that helps you disentangle the OCD from the religion. And, yeah. and now you can, you know, here are the boundaries of the religious requirements. Here's what your OCD is trying to require you to do. And now we have uh, uh, a religious version of sandals to wear as we walk around now. 
Right, right. And there's kind of that. Uh, um, you also you also talked a lot about uh, o- o- overcorrection, in a sense, in, in in treatment that we're not having to go all the way to doing something that's blatantly dangerous, obviously quote sinful, but we have to do something that would be a, a little beyond what the average person might do in order to then, at, at, after treatment, kind of settle back into a typical expression of whatever that action or behavior would be. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think that we OCD therapists um, vary a little bit, even outside of the context of Scroop, about exactly how far we go. Like, how, what do we actually touch in the bathroom and in what way when we're working with contamination, OCD stuff? And, you know, some people have their hands inside the toilet and some people are just touching the, the seat. And that's all right. Um, I think the, the way I usually think of it um, is, you know, John Grayson has pointed out often mm-hmm. that there are a lot of things that people do that are similar to our exposures. They just don't like to think about them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't want to touch the bottom of your shoe and lick your fingers. All right. But you dropped your pen on the floor before, picked it up. And while you were thinking as you were writing, put, you know, you were chewing on the end of it. What's the difference? Right. Um, and, you know, you took out the garbage and, and pushed it in the dumpster and then and stop by the drive through and we're licking your fingers after eating something, yeah. but you don't want to put your hand in the garbage and then lick your fingers. I'm, and so, I'm, so, I'm thinking of his classic example. He does this in person and it, it grosses me out every time of, of taking gum from people. But ladies and gentlemen, if you have not seen this, it is a sight to behold. Jonathan Grayson will walk around an audience and take bubble gum from somebody's mouth and put it directly in his mouth, chew it, give it to someone else, have them chew it, put it back into his mouth with the argument that how is this different than going to a party, finding someone, this is also in the before times before the plague happened. So um, you would go to a party, you find someone cute and you'd kiss him. His argument is what's the difference. Right. Exactly. Now you don't make a lot of friends by pointing this stuff out to them. So if I see you throw away your, you know, drop uh, a potato chip and throw it away and I call you out on it. Or if I see you put that pen in your mouth after it was on the floor, you know, you're like, dude, leave me alone. Right. Um, but, but actually, in some ways, consistency is a sign of severity um, because my patients will say, no, I would never put the pen in my mouth until I use a Clorox wipe on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that, that's part of it. But the other part with overcorrection is it's worth thinking about what you would do, not just what you do do. So, for example, mm-hmm. let's, I think it's fair to concede that people do not regularly stick their hands inside um, a toilet in a public bathroom. Generally. People don't do that. Oh, it's fair to say. However, if you had your, you know, grandmother's diamond engagement ring and it slipped off your finger and fell in a toilet, mm-hmm. what would you do? We're, I'm, get, I'm putting my hand in that toilet. And for a lot of people, you know, if your credit card fell in, I mean, you can just cancel it, but a lot of people say, well, I'm going to reach in though and, and pick it out. Or if your iPhone fell in, or if, you know, uh, what about just money? How much money? Would you do it if it was a thousand dollars in your wallet? What about a hundred? What about 10? Right. So I don't know what everybody's limits are, but the point is even the stuff you don't do, if, if there were a real cost to not doing it, mm-hmm. sentimental cost, financial cost, you would do it even though it's pretty gross and unpleasant. And so what is OCD like? You know, uh, my patients at least are telling me that OCD is often making them miserable, that they wish they had lots of other things instead of OCD. They're paying a lot of money to get treatment for OCD. Mm-hmm. Even, so even just like, you know, financially, how much is... So, so if this is a way to get over, get over or get through your OCD and get back to living the life that is not miserable and that you value... Um, it's worth thinking about in terms of overcorrection. What would you do? 
You know, if you do that for a thousand bucks, how many sessions is a, is a thousand bucks? Right. Right. So even just thinking about it that way. So with the overcorrection, we're not sticking those needles, those dirty needles or potentially dirty needles in the street randomly into our arm. Right. So that's too far. That's when you're not just going on the opposite sort of end of the normal spectrum of comfort or behavior. Mm-hmm. You've gone too far. And if you're adhering to all of your OCD avoidance, then you're off the spectrum in the other direction. Mm-hmm. You're not being careless. You're being way over-controlled in a, in a pathological or dysfunctional way. Right. So we're trying to take you to the other end, I guess, of normal behavior, what somebody either does do or at least would be willing to do if they had reason to. So that, because honestly, if you're, t- if you're able to touch toilet seats and then lick your fingers, let's say, mm-hmm. then just using the door handle to walk into the bathroom is no longer very much of a big deal. Right. And that's the same thing religiously. We're, we're, we're not going to violate the religious law that's inconsistent with the values. That's right. the core fear. Right. But we're going to go as far as we can go without violating religion so we can violate OCD. And now regular run-of-the-mill everyday religious behavior will be much more easy in the same way that now you can open the, the bathroom door. Right. Yeah. If you, can, if you can run a 10K, you can also run a 5K. Yeah. Much better, shorter way to say that. Yep. <laughs> but, I mean, yours is far more clear and relevant to uh, our conversation. Um, yeah. And... and to to those who are outside of the the OCD therapist community, the the, the discussion that Dr. Steve pointed out of how far is too far is is probably going to be an unending debate um, that is uh, rife for anger to a lot of people. But um, but I, I I think the perspective that you're having is ultimately the, I the one I subscribe to. We're trying to get someone not to necessarily be a superhero, but get them back to a place of 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 a more functional faith something that just feels that, that is more consistent with them, more consistent with their community and, and works, works for them. Um, you know, Kevin, if I can, can I read you just a quote that I love that has to do with that? Absolutely. Um, this is, this is a quote from somebody who works closely with somebody who's considered one of the most revered, uh, ex- very ultra Orthodox rabbis in Israel. Um, and so, you know, not that this is necessarily really the right words to use it, but because people talk this way, if you think about you know, somebody being really to the right, religiously, really conservative, that sort of thing, yeah. uh, with a lowercase c, um, uh, this is about as to the right and conservative and uh, as you can find in the Jewish world, okay. um, uh, sort of unimpeachably, uh, uh, like there's nobody who'd be like, oh, he's too liberal or something. Okay. And, and, and here's the quote, and, and this tells us a lot about, first of all, how to recognize the problem, as well as touches on some of the things you've asked me. Okay. Anyway, let me jump in and just read it, uh, uh, if that's okay. Please. And I think he's referring to OCD. He doesn't call it OCD. But he says, uh, he's talking about somebody who's obsessing all the time about doing these rules and these laws wrong and making mistakes. And so he goes to ask the rabbi and he goes to ask again and all that sort of stuff. So he says, if a person like this, he, said, he means, goes and asks the opinion of a teacher of the law, the reply given will not calm him since he will continue to have many doubts that the authority asked didn't hear properly or did not understand his question sufficiently, or even if he did hear, did not understand this specific picture in its details, since he himself had not explained it adequately, etc. And there's no end to these doubts. And therefore, in order to avoid the fear of doubt, he is stringent with himself and repeats the act again. And so it continues, God forbid, every time getting harder and more distressing. 
Ordinarily, a person may occasionally find himself in a situation where it is difficult to carry out a commandment so that he cannot perform it with the usual appropriate pleasure, for this is the nature of man. He sees this as a challenge, and on the next occasion will carry it out with pleasure since he usually performs commandments with enthusiasm and pleasure. However, and this is the, the, the most important part for, for me right now. Okay. However, the person who, whenever he performs the will of the creator, finds his soul and his energies contorted by feelings of discomfort, fear, tension, and misery over the carrying out of the commandment. And on the contrary, this is his usual state. And to carry out commandments out of joy is the exception. This then is clear proof this was not God's intention. Mm. So it's amazing. It's, you know, the dominant emotional experience is the red flag. He's not talking about the mechanisms and the boundaries of then exactly what to do, but he's saying, if your experience of this stuff, which I believe is required of you, and I believe God gave you like all that necessary, if your experience of this is driven by discomfort, fear, tension, misery, you're not doing it right. That's that that's it's it's natural that we sometimes experience it that way, which is what you said before, right? At people who are religious, that's it's normal to struggle with some stuff and yeah. it's inconvenient sometimes, you don't understand it. Mm-hmm. But if that's what's really driving it, is that's what's motivating the behavior, that itself is a sign of the problem. Um, and it's kind of amazing to think about because that's again, that's true of hand washing. That's true of, of all sorts of things. Somebody's not clean because they hand wash 60 times in a half an hour. Mm-hmm. We never describe them as being real. Oh, he, that's a really clean person who's good with hygiene. Right. You're saying that that's somebody who's doing compulsions. Right. Right. Yeah. It's um, for, for listeners of this show, I've talked about before um, the, this concept of have twos versus get twos, where um, life should ought to be about get twos, the things that we like to do, the things that are fun to do. Um, OCD often turns get twos into have twos, which are the obligations or the pain in the butt. Like I've, I have to pay my bills. I don't get to pay my bills. Right. But it's kind of what is this is one of those you know, doing the, the morning routine you, you earlier described, that's a that's a have to in terms of uh, someone who's within the, within the community. But if you're if, if it if the experience of it is this this weight, this tremendous burden, you're and the way that you're doing it is 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 experienced that way. You're probably doing it from a compulsive perspective. So it has turned into this, you know, the, the unwanted have to aspect of things is that fair, fair to say or am i completely yeah off? i think so and, and 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 you know what that ends up meaning and to use the example you just brought up with the hand washing routine in the morning is if if you're consumed as you're i don't think anybody washes their hands that way and is like oh i'm so connected to god maybe a few random people but that, that's not the expectation that's not what he means by joy you don't have joy over that right uh, more it's more you know sort of big picture joy and certain certain more meaningful things but if your experience of that is you sit there uh, uh, obsessing and analyzing the whole time if you missed a spot and afterward you're like i don't know i don't remember the water running over the spot of my hands and you're you're trying to check to see if you can tell if it's dry enough or if it's sim if your experience is being consumed by did I get it wrong and how might I have gotten it wrong and maybe I should just be to be safe, do it again. That's how it ends up looking, uh, you know, uh, in the experience of the folks who are actually struggling with OCD that's latched onto it. Mm. I, I know, I know in the sake of time, I, I, again, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I have some questions that I'd love to just run through. Um, yeah, sure. Just w- mm-hmm. One is, um, what obstacles to treatment do some, uh, do some or- or Orthodox communities or, or, or other communities in the Jewish 
group. Uh, what 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 obstacles do they face when seeking treatment? Yeah, so I, I guess uh, off the top of my head, there are a few um, within the community. There are very few people, depending on which which community. I mean, there are a lot of communities that you'd call orthodox and even ultra orthodox that are very different from each other. Yeah. So here there's a lot of variability actually, but, but for many of them, there aren't within the community people who have been trained to do this very well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not part of the very ultra orthodox community, certainly not some of them, but I am, am close enough and comfortable enough and familiar enough that I get a lot of referrals from those communities uh, because they know I'll be respectful and knowledgeable about yeah. the rules and that sort of thing. But within the community, there isn't necessarily a lot of knowledge. And then the biggest problem uh, uh, is for any individual and then maybe for the community as a whole, knowing about or suspecting experiences like what I told you before yeah. of people saying, hey, just eat a cheeseburger. And it's like, you're just not getting it or you're not valuing it. or And, and I think some of that connects to, even if people aren't aware specifically of, let's say, what Freud has said or exactly what happens in academic departments. And you know, my day job, so to speak, is that I am uh, I'm uh, on faculty at a at, at a liberal arts college that's quite to the left in many ways and that sort of thing. And, and certainly a, a lot of my colleagues are, are either atheist or agnostic and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, but there, uh, there's, there is a history certainly in psychology of pathologizing religion mm -hmm. or at least devaluing it. I mean, Freud talked about religion as like an obsessional neurosis basically. And, uh, and so it's not for nothing that there is skepticism from people who care very much about that. And it's not just Jews. I think a lot of very religious people are skeptical of the agenda or whatever it would be of those secular therapists and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and, and whether it's they're trying to make me lose my, what they think of, of as my stupid, superstitious, whatever is, right. or even if it's not such an agenda, it's just that they don't respect it or value it in some ways. And then the, these experiences where, where people in fact uh, are encouraged to do things that, are not the appropriate thing to encourage them to do. So those, I think the combination of those three things, which are obviously related to each other, are the biggest barriers that I see in the communities that I know, at least. Mm. What are some things that kind of uh, maybe family members can do to help loved ones who may be experiencing scrupulosity? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, obviously support and encouragement and, and, and uh, move, uh, moving them toward treatment in, in ways uh, as best they can. Um, we did a, a study or two actually wondering how very religious or how people and ultra orthodox people uh, would do in terms of recognizing Scroop, right? Mm -hmm. Would they just uh, uh, imagine it as almost like commendable behavior? Uh, I've seen that happen in some mm -hmm. settings uh, anecdotally where somebody was doing something that others weren't recognizing as being pathological, even though it was exceeding community norms, but everybody's like, oh, that person is particularly, I've actually heard this word scrupulous, but not meaning it the way you and I are talking about it. They just right. mean very careful in their business dealings. They would, you know, to avoid any chance of stealing anything that's not theirs, they wouldn't even take that tissue or they would return the dime that they found on the floor, like that kind of stuff. Like they're positively um, zealous. Yeah, exactly. And right. so, you know, but that's the same way we say to somebody, hey, you look great. Did you lose weight? And that's fine. And unless it turns out the person either has cancer or has an eating disorder. Right. So we sometimes we sometimes praise things that can turn out uh, to be pathological. Mm -hmm. So but but it, so we didn't know how, how they would take it. It actually turned out that they were particularly good at recognizing when it was OCD mm. um, and particularly because they knew what the norms were. Right. Somebody who actually practices that every day would know about the morning routine and they would know that. Yeah, that's normal in general, but doing it a second and third time to make sure that you didn't miss a spot because you brushed against what, whatever as you did it 
that's not normal. That's excessive. Um, so, so sometimes, uh, actually the first ultra Orthodox Jewish group case I ever had, now that I think about it yeah. was somebody who was really encouraged by her husband to come and, uh, he really supported the treatment and he was uh, a rabbi, a scholar, uh, very ultra Orthodox, sort of very to the right of the spectrum of these things. And, uh, but it was very clear to him that his wife's behavior and her fears were excessive and inconsistent and motivated by the wrong things. Mm -hmm. And so in those cases, he was able to, to really encourage her and be supportive in a way that certainly is not uh, at odds with her values. It's not actually, you should be working to get rid of the OCD part of this. Um, but of course, you know, as with, you know, and they're the typical concerns about symptom accommodation from loved ones and that sort of thing. And that would be no different. I don't think for Scroop than anything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are, are there some things that are unhelpful uh, when either from 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 family members to try to word? Let, let's take this back, and I'll ask it more correctly, more clearly. Um, what are some unhelpful things uh, that uh, that either are going to come from a clinician or a family member or even a religious leader that are, that are going to be unhelpful for that person? I'll start with the last example you gave the religious leader first. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, working with clergy is not only uh, important and necessary often with yeah. Scroop, but often helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, they are qualified to to say things that you're not necessarily qualified to say. I don't want to be seen as an, even though I know Jewish law, you know, fairly well, uh, um, but I don't want to be perceived as an expert in that because then when I tell somebody to do something, right, there's built-in reassurance and that sort of thing. Like, I don't, I don't want to be that. I'm not that, that authority. So, we're often working with clergy. Mm -hmm. And in Judaism, there's certainly an emphasis on asking what they call shilas, which means asking questions uh, about Jewish law, about appropriate behavior, consulting with the rabbi about stuff. Those are normative things. Um, at the same time, clergy, I, th I think it's probably true across religions, clergy are trained in a different way with different sorts of priorities. And what I mean by that is even the most well-intentioned clergy person, mm -hmm. like it's, it's, it's a strange inversion of what how they're normally thinking to take an approach of how far can i go how close to sin can i get without crossing the line right that's what we're trying to do in erp though right again i told you i don't want to cross the line but i want to get close yeah so so that it's a weird way to think it, it, it wouldn't strike you as strange i don't think if somebody went to a priest a rabbi a minister whatever and said you know i'm worried about the following and the advice was a way to try to you know sort of sidestep the issue you know maybe it's say some prayers say some hail marys if it's a priest or something like that right. or, or you know there are certain rituals in judaism also where i've i've seen you know the rabbi says all right look just to be safe or there's sometimes you know there's one minority opinion in jewish law that holds the following it's not normative in practice but the rabbi might say like you know just just to cover all bases let's let's do it this way instead of that way play it safe that's yeah play it safe and that's reasonable like why would you be trained otherwise why would it make sense for for a rabbi to adopt the mindset of how much can we get away with right we don't do that even you know with our kids we don't do that with even like i don't know american law most of the time right right so, well you're not looking for chances to get as close as you can to it but it, but it's necessary here so so those are some of the the bad messages that can you saying you know like pitfalls or where it can go wrong yeah clergy most of the time are really 
great to collaborate with if you can help them sort of align and they understand that you're not out to ruin religion and that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, it might not be their default way of thinking about it. So patients have already often gone to clergy and been advised to do things that were like, I don't know, I don't, you know, that's, that's not a good idea from an OCD perspective. And that's not on them. They're not OCD clinicians. It's not saying they're bad or they're, they're problematic in some fundamental way, Mm -hmm. but it does become a complicating thing and something that you as a therapist can uh, hopefully collaborate to solve. Um, so that's one big barrier. Okay. Um, other barrier that, you know, on the flip side, what I said before coming from therapists is often pushing the patients to give up or violate their values and making patients feel like they somehow have to choose between their mental health and what's important to them in life. Right. Instead of understanding that uh, not only could you, but you should help people pursue what's important to them in life right. by eliminating the OCD. Right. Um, so those are, again, I don't know if those are flip sides of the same coin, if those are, you know, but the, uh, you know, opposite ends of the same pole of the problem. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of hearing in that is that, um, you know, for the, the, the way, one way that someone can deal with their, their OCD isn't, isn't to go to either, either poles on this, isn't to go to either extreme where you lean excessively hard into your religion, but it's not to lean entirely away from it as an avoidance. Um, I think that there's, there, there can right. be that perspective for some clinicians where, you know, as, as you were kind of saying, if the perception is the problem is the religion, so if the problem is the religion, we'll stop doing the religion. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and one way that the problem can look on the religious side, it's not really uniquely religious. Uh, I think you'll recognize in this uh, just other cultural versions of this exact same thing that have nothing to do with religion directly is like, uh, um, you know, there was like a Yiddish saying that's like, oh, oh, you have a lot of fear, you know, say the following prayer. It's like, like somehow you're going to religion your way out of the OCD. Religion's not a solution to the OCD. It's also true, though, that religion isn't the cause of the OCD, yeah. even though people imagine that for some time. But clearly the data show otherwise, and it doesn't even make sense for other reasons I won't go into. But, yeah. but you know, you can't use religion to get out of OCD, nor can you, mm-hmm. nor is religion the reason that, that creates it. And that's, you know, that's the same thing. You know, when I'm saying it's not just about religion, you know, other communities are like, just tough it up, be a man, like, you know, like somehow you can handle OCD by, it's not really a mental health issue. It's, it's, a, it's a, a moral weakness, a character weakness. It's fundamentally, I think, the same problem. Yeah. 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 And it's, I, I can't tell you how many of my, you know, Christian and Catholic clients have just been told, well, have you considered praying more? Have you, are are you, are you in the word is, is what they'll sell is what they'll say. Um, Yeah. And I think that's, I'll tell, I'll tell clients the, the way out of OCD isn't through solving the problem. It's, it's by addressing the anxiety. So, um, well, I, I, I know that you've got to get out of here and I, if, if, um, uh, once we end, if I could hold on to you for just a moment to ask you just a couple of questions um, after this, but. But anyhow, it, it, my, my last question to you will be, uh, is there anything that you'd like to tag onto this or if there was one takeaway that, that someone who's listening to this who might be, uh, you know, or orthodox or might be ultra orthodox that might be listening to this, is there something that you would say to them that would encourage them or, or help them along their way? I mean, the biggest message, the biggest takeaway I'd want for anybody is is really kind of uh, uh, related to the last thing we were talking about, which is you don't need to choose between your values or your your religious commitments and OCD. Um, you know, I guess I can't speak to 
you know, uh, uh, every single religion that could pop up anywhere, uh, cults, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about the major religions of the world that have stood the test of time, most people do not have OCD. Uh, you know, when they practice the religion, most people are able to practice the religion in ways that don't get stuck on these things that you may be stuck on if you're scrupulous, whether those are, you know, what it means about them because they had a doubt or an intrusive thought that they thought could be sinful or about the possibility that they accidentally didn't wash their hands right or cross-contaminated dairy and meat or, you know, carried outside the area, you're allowed to carry things on on the Sabbath or whatever. Most people are able to function. And so the question is uh, how, but the, the, the promise really is that you can learn to have a functional life without giving up the religion or whatever else you value and without adhering to the OCD in order to try to make that happen. Mm. And uh, your alarms are all saying to you, threat, 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 danger, danger, danger. But alarms are only as good as they are calibrated. And so if you have a smoke detector, you might've had lots of fire drills in your life that say when it's beeping, you got to get out. But you've probably had a smoke detector in your life that was low battery at some point. And every time you fried eggs, it started going off. Mm -hmm. Well, now you have a choice to make every time it goes off, you can leave your house or you can just only eat cereal for breakfast. Um, and the cost is going to be that you're going to get to work late or you're going to not get to eat eggs or something like that. And you could be thinking to yourself, well, look, I know it started when I fried the egg, but how do I know there's no electrical fire in the wall that happened to start at the same time, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Or you can choose to say, this is saying there's threat and it's, it's good. We have smoke detectors for a reason. You know, we need things we need alarms. Um, uh, it's saying there's threat, but I know that it's not a reliable signal of threat right now. Mm. And so I'm going to stay in here and cook my eggs because it matters to me to get to work on time and I want to eat eggs. And the advantage is, is exactly that the cost is it's very loud. It's very annoying. It's very hard to sit there while it's, while it's doing that. And so um, you can, the fact that you feel like it's dangerous, you feel disconnected from God, that sort of thing, or you, mm -hmm. you the, the feelings are good signals when you don't have OCD. Right. And so if you don't mind me just closing with one short anecdote, sure. I was working with a, 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 with a gentleman who had a very specific set of re, uh, religious fears. He was an ultra-Orthodox guy and in a certain domain. And, you know, there's a lot in the sort of rabbinic literature, I'm sure this is true of other religions too, about sort of, you know, uh, God being is always involved in your life and take messages from things that happen to you. And there are no real true coincidences and that kind of stuff. So, it, you know, it, those things do exist. And what happened was he was really obsessing that he was doing a certain thing wrong that was very, very unreasonable. And one day he sits down to do his religious studies and he opens a book, a very thick book. And wouldn't you believe it? It opens right to the page that's discussing this thing that he's so terrified he's doing wrong. How about that? This is a sign, right? This is a sign. So he comes in and he's, we're talking about it. And, you know, of course I think it's probably a coincidence and, but, but, you know, the, it sounds like I'm trying to argue him out of it or whatever. Anyway, I ended yeah. up consulting with uh, another sort of unimpeachably conservative and, and, and widely respected by everybody, uh, Jewish legal authority yeah. about something else anyway. And so I said to him, you know, this, uh, I was working with a guy and, and this came up and he said, oh, this is a message. And he cut me off. The rabbi cut me off and said, somebody with OCD is not allowed to make those interpretations. Is not allowed to see signs and things. Mm -hmm. 
and basically explained it without using the analogy as being like the smoke detector with a bad battery. For him, there's an assumption, a default assumption that unless proven otherwise, unless there's real good evidence otherwise, that his that he's not going to be able to accurately infer whatever messages might be helpful to infer or might be encouraging for his religious practice or whatever. He has OCD. And if you have OCD, you're anxious about all kinds of things and you're not qualified to judge whether or not this is a sign from God, etc. So disconnecting from that emotional stuff, not making decisions based on whether it feels bad, whether you feel guilty, committing to your values, to what you believe to be true, and then living a life that moves toward that and not toward serving anxiety reduction and OCD. And you can do that and still be religious. I think that's perfect. I don't think I could say it any better. So, um, Dr. Steve, thank you so much for taking your time and sharing your expertise with, uh, with the listeners. And um, have a good day. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Kevin. Absolutely. All right, everybody, you made it through this episode. Thank you all so much for joining uh, uh, myself and Dr. Steve for this episode. Uh, I know it was a long one, but uh, he was so generous to uh, to give us a, and lend us his time on uh, and, and to educate us all on, on these subjects. So as you all know, the FearCast is a question and answer based podcast. So after the interview, I asked Dr. Steve if he'd be willing to join us again to answer some questions from folks in the Orthodox or, or, or Ultra orthodox community and uh, and he was said that he'd be more than happy to join us so so if, if you are in that population or that community and you have questions about uh, religious scrupulosity or ocd as it pertains to your to uh, uh, to your faith please feel free to send in a question you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and submit a question at the uh, you can click on the uh, submit a question link send me a message and uh, and if it pertains to this uh, it pertains to these issues we're talked about today I will get in contact with Dr. Steve try to get him on to answer that question Additionally, if you want to know more about Dr. Sieve and if you want to try to get in contact with him, you can go to Jed Sieve, and that's spelled J-E-D-S-I-E-V.com. So JedSieve.com. You can learn a little bit more about him and his research, and you can contact him directly through that website. All right, everybody. Please remember again that uh, I, all the information in here is just for informational purposes and uh, is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you need a little bit more help in trying to learn a little bit more about uh, treatment and want to get connected with a therapist, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com, go to the Find Help link, and there'll be some links there that will uh, be of help to you. All right, everyone. So until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye. Thank you.